Good afternoon and welcome and thank you for being here. Um, my name is John Evans. I work as the director of the Institute for Art and Healing at Commonweal. Really, really a special time here to have David White and Michael be together in a conversation and to have all of you with us. Um, I tend to need to read an intro because I get a little nervous and my voice quivers, but it goes away. It's just a little fear. So um, I've moved beyond good afternoon and welcome. My name is. Um, so on behalf of the Institute for Art and Healing and the New School at Commonweal, uh, I want to welcome you again to a special day of pilgrimage, pilgrimage as identity. Uh, with David White, and then with a conversation with Michael Lerner. First, David will read to us, and then he'll move into a conversation with Commonwealth's founder and CEO, Michael Lerner. David offered us a definition yesterday of Pilgrim at a gathering in San Francisco on gratefulness, which centered on the work of Brother David Stendelrest. He said it meant one who is passing through, I did a little more research, and the word comes from the Latin peregrinus, one who has come from afar, a traveler on a journey to a holy place. Typically, pilgrimages are thought of as physical journeys, mostly on foot, to some place of special significance in search of or perhaps looking for deeper revelation or a spiritual meaning in life. David's passing, passing through is certainly a very physical journey, clearly demonstrated in his love for and his full-throttle, lifelong engagement with the natural world. But it also seems that he's especially tuned to fulfilling a spiritual role, being a carrier of consciousness in our contemporary world as a bridge builder, a pathfinder between corporations who need a soulful, creative, expressive life and between ancestors living nearby underground and new generations trying to find their way above ground, and for people who are experiencing profoundly challenging in-between times, like midlife losses of a job, the ending of a significant relationship, the sorrows and excitements of aging, the loss and pain of beloved friends and family members upon their dying. In fact, and, and he doesn't know this, the first time I ever experienced David's teaching was on a retreat here in California five years ago, two days after he delivered the eulogy for his best friend and fellow pilgrim, John O'Donohue. He was jet-lagged, he was in shock, but he'd shown up, and he'd come from afar to holy ground with us 200 in a room much like this to share his love his friendship, his heart full of grief, his creative gifts about their inspired friendship. It was a powerful experience in celebration of love for three days. It was about the healing power of art and community. So this afternoon has been planned also as a celebration, actually many celebrations nested together, a celebration of the Commonweal community, of poetry as a language, an art of the soul, 
of the transformational medicine of art, of the subtle spiritual beauties communicated through the tone and energetic nuance of a healer's magnificent voice. I think I fell in love with David's voice even before I really grokked what the words were. Um, We're also celebrating the Brower Center. David Brower celebrating um, his time, his leadership uh, in this very community. He was a brilliant, also activist pilgrim who changed the way our society thinks about and protects the natural world. A man who passed through this life as an environmentalist, a mountaineer, a visionary, founding the Sierra Club, the John Muir Institute for Environmental Studies, Friends of the Earth, the League of Conservation Voters, Earth Island Justice, and the Fate of the Earth Conferences. How fitting, really, that we should be here today to see an exhibition also next door in the gallery about his life called Think Like a River, with its photographic mission, magnifying the enduring power of art as a tool for advocacy. Today is also a thank you to Commonweal for 36 years as a community of compassion in action, as a community of service, as a community of healers and artists, activists and visionaries, wanderers and wanderers, a community of wayfarers, researchers, deep thinkers, and very deep feelers, a community dedicated to healing our earth, our bodies, our minds, our spirit, and all of our relations. Due to Michael Lerner's extraordinary vision, and for anyone who knows him, for his shimmering heart of light and insatiably curious wild mind, Commonweal is a sacred network, a beautiful web like Indra's net of bejeweled connections, relationships, projects, values, dreams, public programs, unconditional love fests, and interspecies adventures. It is the mothership for more than 12 programs, including the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, the Institute for the Study of Illness and Health, the Integrative Law Institute, the Commonweal Healing Kitchen, the Cancer Help Program, the Ocean Policy Program, and the Beloved New School. Many others, too. Thanks to the work of Michael and also to Susan Brown, our Commonweal Executive Director, the newly funded Institute for Art and Healing is now part of the Commonwealth Part family of programs. But art and healing is not really new work at Commonwealth. Michael has explained in an email earlier this year that what makes the Institute for Art and Healing core to Commonwealth's work is that the healing arts came to Commonwealth in 1986 when a gifted sand tray artist, Marion Saltman, first arrived to bring her healing art to the Cancer Help Program. Healing arts in particular, Michael said, often have the capacity to bring out in people who are caught in often desperate suffering the heretofore unconscious keys that unlock the doors to a way of living with less suffering. That's the reason why the healing arts are absolutely central to our healing work. Our goals at the Institute are to help in the fields fields of art and healing and to have them grow together to make the field of heart and healing more visible through collaborations, cross-pollinations, celebrations like this one, and community participation. We want to increase the access of resources for arts and healing, both 
human, and technical, also financial, for people who may be marginalized or underserved, and to reach out through these partnerships and joint projects to develop art and healing networks and alliances with others in urban and rural communities. We're wanting to support promising new approaches and dreams to the field of arts and healing and really bring them forward so that practitioners and the public can share those two things together. And finally, we want to build on Commonweal's legacy of learning and leading to share the expertise, the gifts, and the relationships gleaned from the past 36 years of love and work. So thanks to the many talents and collaborative efforts of two special friends and colleagues, Kara Epstein of Commonweal's New School and Stephanie Alston of the Institute for Art and Healing, this afternoon of celebration and thanks and pilgrimage has been made possible. There will be no intermission, just a brief stretch break after David's reading, and then a conversation between our two beautiful pilgrims. We'll be um, also, uh, at that point, um, sorry, now I've gone past my page. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a reception afterwards. There are a few tickets left um, for sale uh, at the ticket table out in front. We'd love to have you join us. And just to say thank you again for your patience and listening to this lengthy, stuttering introduction. Um, and for you to know, thank God I'm finally near the end of it. There's a quote from one of David's poems in Pilgrim. I will speak with a voice of loyalty and faith to the far shore where everything turns to arrival. Let us please listen to this voice of loyalty and faith echoing from the far shore let us welcome the arrival, David White. So it's uh, very good to be here and uh, in a place named after David Bra, whose life and work I have great respect for, and to be here with, here with uh, Commonweal and uh, to look forward to a good old conversation with uh, Michael Lerner. So um, the theme for this afternoon is, the, is uh, Pilgrim. And uh, it's the title of my latest book, which is uh, just, just out. And uh, it was a title I gave to, uh, to a cycle of poems which were arriving very quickly and which, to begin with, was just a, a working title because I was sure there must have been hundreds of other books which were named Pilgrim, and uh, uh, because it's such an old word, and it's such a word that lies at the heart of all cultures, and uh, in almost every, every uh, human culture in history, there's been the sense of the far horizon and the special journey and an excuse for the special journey. Uh, but there's also been the, the sense that uh, that incarnation itself is the most special journey of, of all. And speaking of John O'Donoghue, who was a priest for 17 years and a good friend of mine, great philosopher, he was a philosopher poet. I would be a poet philosopher. So we had, used to have great dinner conversations together. <laughs> but uh, one of the things he used to say was, uh, the great miracle in life is not the turning of water into wine or the parting of the Red Sea. The great miracle in life is that there's something rather than nothing. Uh, 
and that we can actually participate in it. And the privilege of incarnation, the ability to see the color blue or to hear another person's laughter or to see a face uh, or even the privilege of being irritated uh, in traffic uh, or delayed by the gay pride uh, (laughs) parade in downtown San Francisco uh, under a beautiful blue sky. These uh, are all uh, astonishing phenomena, really. And so the basic miracle is the, is the miracle of coming to ground, of simply being here in a way in which you understand uh, what you're involved with as a human being. Uh, and uh, I thought I'd begin with an old poem of mine, actually, from a book called The House of Belonging, and it's the title poem. And it's really uh, about uh, the place you both want to reach and, uh, the, and the place you want to set off from at the same time. And sometimes in a human life you go through epochs where the dark clouds seem to blow in and the tide goes out and, uh, and you seem to be impersonating yourself. Uh, I was once asked uh, how often I wrote. I said, whenever I feel like a fake. And, they, and the interviewer said, how often is that? I said, every day. <laughs> And, uh, but you get, uh, you get uh, periods in your life where, where, uh, where uh, the sense of fakery seems impenetrable and you don't seem to be able to get back to yourself or even to establish the conversation. And you need a lot of help from good friends and, uh, and from all the different qualities of life and all the different quarters and horizons of life. But one day, uh, the help can just arrive in a change of weather. And you don't know what's occurred. The, the, the clouds have just blown away. And uh, you've, you've decided to hold the conversation in a different way. Or you had a very good night's sleep. And suddenly, there's a different possibility. And it's astonishing the way that human beings live through these cycles of appearance and disappearance. But it's also astonishing that we only feel alive when we're on the up and up. But one half of existence, looking at the, from the ecological perspective, one half of the natural world is always disappearing and falling away. So most human beings are at war with reality 50% of the time. And uh, the great question is, will you be as much present in your griefs and your disappearances and your inability to know the way uh, as you are when you're sure of things and you're confident and you have something very specific to give as your gift. So this is waking uh, just after a change of weather. Uh, It's called the house of belonging. I awoke this morning in the gold light. I awoke this morning in the gold light, turning this way and that turning this way and that, thinking, thinking it was one day like any other. But the veil had gone from my darkened heart, and I thought it must have been the quiet candlelight that filled my room. It must have been the first easy rhythm with which I breathed myself to sleep. It must have been the prayer, I said, speaking to the otherness of the night. And I thought, this is the good day you could meet your love. This is the grey day someone close to you could die. 
This is the day you realize how easily the thread is broken between this world and the next. And I found myself sitting up in the quiet pathway of light, the tawny, close-grained cedar burning round me like fire, and all the angels of this housely heaven ascending through the first roof of light the sun had made. This is the bright home in which I live. This is where I ask my friends to come. This is where I want to love all of the things it has taken me so long to learn to love. This is where I want to love all of the things it has taken me so long to learn to love. This is the temple of my adult belonging. Of my, this is the temple of my adult aloneness. And I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. There is no house. There is no house. There is no house like the house of belonging. I awoke this morning in the gold light, turning this way and that, thinking, thinking it was one day like any other. But the veil had gone from my darkened heart, and I, and I thought it must have been the quiet candlelight that filled my room. It must have been the first easy rhythm with which I breathed myself to sleep. It must have been the prayer, I said, speaking to the otherness of the night. And I thought, this is the good day you could meet your love. This is the grey day someone close to you could die. This is the day you realise how easily the thread is broken between this world and the next. And I found myself sitting up in the quiet pathway of light, the tawny, close, grain cedar burning round me like fire, and all the angels of this housely heaven ascending through the first roof of light the sun had made. This is the bright home in which I live. This is where I ask my friends to come. This is where I want to love all of the things it has taken me so long to learn to love. This is the temple of my adult aloneness, and I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. There is no house, there is no house, there is no house like the house of belonging. I wrote uh, that uh, at a desk uh, at, on a landing, an upstairs landing, you know, where the stairs finish and you've got that wonderful, that wonderful liminal space uh, between the top of the stairs and the rest of the house. And there was a window there and I had a little carved desk in the corner that was uh, almost in the shape of a violin. And uh, it was just a little corner desk, but I wrote the whole of the House of Belonging at that desk. And uh, so it was, it was a wonderful hermetic space. But it was also written uh, in a brief bachelor period of my life uh, when I was uh, moving with my son as a, as a father-son duo into this, into this small farmhouse. And I always think, you know, if you're, if you're in uh, the house of belonging, it doesn't matter how small it is, it has endless horizons. And there's nothing that is more spacious than the first funky little flat you move into when you are at university. Or uh, and it doesn't matter how decrepit the furniture is or who you have to share it with. It's, the, it's your first home in the world and it has endless horizons to it. Yeah. And you can come round the corner 20 years later in your BMW looking at your six-bedroom mansion and it just looks like work. <laughs> The gutters, the lawn, 
the siding, <laughs> the people who are living in there with you. <laughs> you just come to a halt and look at it and say, I have to move out or move in in a deeper way. Yeah, so. But it's astonishing the way that the sense of home in a human life ebbs and flows. And it wasn't long after that that, uh, that that sense of spaciousness invited a woman into my life who became my wife. And then there was a, another daughter along the way, another child. And that uh, liminal space at the top of the stairs became filled with bright red and blue plastic objects. You know? <laughs> and my, uh, my, uh, my life and my uh, writing space was devastated as any self-respecting relationship should do, yes. And, and, uh, and it wasn't long afterwards that I was in Italy speaking and, uh, for a consultancy company there, and they'd done all of these marvelous translations of my poetry and, uh, and put all of these, uh, these uh, Renaissance graphics with it, uh, with it, as only the Italians can. But, but they had this translation of the House of Belonging, and I looked over, and in Italian it said, uh, the House of Belongings... <laughs> <laughs> and I said to myself, how did they know? <laughs> that the whole season had changed, you know. And of course, I was just living in a different kind of house. And one of the remarkable things is we, we live under these names, under these temporary names. Householder, husband, wife, partner, yeah. And, um, and even mother and father can be temporary at times, yeah, in the tragedy of life. Um, except uh, mother and father would probably the, be names that, that would uh, cling to a human being uh, longer than almost any other name you carry. And this first poem in a cycle of poems about, uh, about the pilgrim life were written for a friend of mine uh, who, um, who, when she was 22, uh, moved from California to Rome. And, uh, and uh, any uh, self-respecting 22-year-old heterosexual woman going to Rome should fall in love with an Italian <coughs> man. And, uh, and she did. Uh, but she took it a step further than most and actually married the fellow. And... Uh, and they lived together and had two children. And then they parted. And I didn't meet uh, my friend Laurie, Laurie de Mori, until after they'd parted. And uh, Laurie was living in this beautiful uh, farmhouse in Tuscany that they'd renovated together uh, with these two children. And these children were then, when I first met Laurie, 13 or 15. And 13 or 15 is that astonishing threshold where, where it seems as if childhood has gone on forever and will, and in the blink of an eye, they're gone out of the house, yeah, and they've left the nest, and you just can't believe how fast that period goes between adolescence and, and the first goodbye as they go out into the world. And so I got to know Laurie, and I came to this, this farmhouse in winter with the, the, the in, uh, in Tuscany, they have um, these beautiful fires which are halfway up the wall and which uh, both throw warmth into the house and you can cook on at the same time. And I walked into this pa palace of ochre and light and cooking smells and rosemary and, and these two very happy children and Laurie there. 
and uh, here was this astonishing house of belonging. And, um, and I got to know Laurie, and uh, she and I uh, have uh, engineered a pilgrimage to Tuscany every year, which we've carried on since. But I witnessed those two children growing into their young adulthood, and the lad, who was then 15, has just graduated this year from Stanford, actually, and uh, the daughter is in London. And there came the time where Laurie had to say goodbye, and not only was she saying goodbye to her children, but she was saying goodbye to the farmhouse, and she had to close it up because she'd met someone else who lived in London and she was moving to London. So the whole tide had gone out completely from this astonishing sense of grounded incarnation. Um, and it's not as if you'd ever say, I'm going to one day exchange this for something else. It just starts to happen. Yeah? And, uh, but she was really good to herself. And uh, as part of the tra tra transition, she decided to do the Camino de Santiago. Yeah? And she went off for six or seven weeks. And she's a food writer, so she actually got a, a lovely job in writing about the food all along the way. Yes? <laughs> and, um, but really, it was a very personal journey. And she was really going uh, from one interpretation of the name Mother to a deeper one, which uh, had not only the sense of shelter and looking after and care and compassion in it, but also now a component of, um, of uh, letting go and a fearful kind of, uh, that first fearful sense of personal freedom when you're not quite sure you'd like it uh, in the form that it's now coming to you. <clears throat> and one of the lovely merciful things about being on the Camino is, is that you're addressed anonymously by people you meet along the road as peregrino, which in Latin means wanderer or, uh, or traveler. And so everyone calls you peregrino. So if you're turning left when you should be right, someone in the street will, will say, hey, peregrino, you know, a derecha, a la derecha, you know, go, go right, don't go left. And so people, it's just used as a lovely name. So you can let go of your own name for a while. Yeah? And, and uh, so it's peregrino this and peregrino that, or peregrina if you're a, a woman. And in the, even in the restaurants, they'll have menus with uh, peregrino specials. <laughs> Nine euros and 95 cents. Yes. So it's lovely to have the excuse just to let go of this name and let it, come back to you in the way it's meant to, even the word mother. But we carry names, men or women, father, you know, uh, teacher, professor, engineer, um, lawyer, temporary names that you have to reinterpret in, all, in order to keep alive, just as you have to reinterpret your home. So this was written for, uh, for my friend um, Laurie going on this, uh, this journey. Uh, across the Camino and into her future, and it's called Camino. The way forward, the way between things. The way forward, the way between things. The way already walked before you, the path disappearing and reappearing, even as the ground gave way beneath you. The grief apparent only in the moment of forgetting. The grief, grief apparent only in the moment of forgetting. Then the river, the mountain, 
the lifting song of the skylark inviting you over the rain-filled pass when your legs had given up. And after, it would be dusk and the half-lit villages in evening light. Other people's homes glimpsed through lighted windows and inside, other people's lives. Other people's homes glimpsed through lighted windows and inside, other people's lives. Your own home you had left crowding your memory as you looked to see a child playing or a mother moving from one side of a room to another. Your eyes wet with the cold, keen wind of Navarre. But your loss brought you here. Your loss brought you here to walk under one name and one name only. Your loss brought you here to walk under one name and one name only. And to find the guise under which all loss can live. To find the guise under which all loss can live. Remember, you were given that name every day along the way. Remember, you were greeted as such. And you needed no other name. Other people seemed to know you even before you gave up being a shadow on the road and came into the light. Even before you gave up being a shadow on the road and came into the light. Even before you sat down, broke bread and drank wine, wiped the wind tears from your eyes. Pilgrim, they seem to call you again and again. Pilgrim. The way forward, the way between things. The way already walked before you, the path disappearing and reappearing, even as the ground gave way beneath you, the grief apparent only in the moment of forgetting, then the river, the mountain, the lifting song of the skylark inviting you over the rain-filled pass when your legs had given up and after it would be dusk and the half-lit villages in evening light, other people's homes glimpsed through lighted windows and inside other people's lives, your own home you had left, crowding your memory as you looked to see a child playing or a mother moving from one side of a room to another. Your eyes wet with the cold, keen wind of Navarre, but your loss brought you here to walk under one name and one name only and to find the guise under which all lost can live. Remember, you were given that name every day along the way. Remember, you were greeted as such, and you needed no other name. Other people seemed to know you, even before you gave up being a shadow on the road and came into the light. Other people seemed to know you, even before you gave up being a shadow on the road and came into the light. Even before you sat down, broke bread, and drank wine, wiped the wind tears from your eyes. Pilgrim, they seem to call you again and again, Pilgrim. As I was uh, writing the book, and uh, as I realized there was hardly any other books with the name Pilgrim. There's only three or four, actually. And, uh, and I decided to use the... Uh, one of them, of course, is the, uh, is the very uh, famous Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan. Uh, another one was a pirated copy of Shakespeare's works that someone bootlegged in, 70, in uh, 1599 <laughs> called uh, The Passionate Pilgrim. And then there's a recent novel, and that's about it. And I said, 
I said, I'll use it, you know, because it's a really precise description of human identity. Someone who's passing through very quickly, actually, comparatively quickly. And the older you get, the more you realize how swiftly you're making the journey. And uh, someone who's also dependent upon the hospitality of others. And someone who must be hospitable themselves in order to create the companionship along the way that's going to make it both delightful, nourishing, and safe. Yeah? And it's also someone for whom, the, for whom the destination is transforming and changing the closer that they approach it. So you get that marvelous magnetic sense of trepidation and anticipation as you get closer and a kind of beautiful shyness as you approach the supposed destination. I always think shyness is a very underestimated quality and we tend to try and overcome shyness, especially in our extrovert society. But shyness, shyness just tells you that you're in the presence of something that you really, really want for yourself and you haven't a clue as to how you're going to attract it, you know. And uh, it's like being in the presence of someone you've just fallen completely and utterly in love with, you know? and you don't know how to hold the conversation, you know? and you don't know what to wear. <laughs> <laughs> the most telling diagnostic, yes. <clears throat> Throwing shoes and shirts all over the place, yes. <clears throat> But there's an axis of magnetism, of attraction. Um, and as yet, you don't know how to hold the conversation. And I think one of the lovely dynamics of life, really, is all the shelter and the different forms of shelter that you experience along the way and that others offer to you. And one of the most beautiful forms of shelter you're offered is the shelter offered by a stranger, someone who has no reason at all to help you or to get out of the car to give you a push when you're stuck in the middle of the Embarcadero, you know? Um, I always remember pulling up to a junction in Seattle, and, and at all the junctions in Seattle, they're staked out now by homeless people. And the, um, the cardboard that they carry often has quite, uh, quite creative inscriptions on them, you know? um, every kind of request. You know? And one of my favorite ones was, uh, was uh, <clears throat> no bullshit, just give me money. <laughs> <laughs> I've always liked honesty, so I stopped and gave them a dollar. <laughs> but I remember this time pulling up, and I didn't have to, I was on my way somewhere, and I usually I have a few dollars to, to hand out, because most of them are, uh, are, have great mental difficulties, and that's why they're on, they're on the on the street, you know. And um, and I remember pulling out into the junction, and I pulled past three or four of them. I pulled out into the junction, and the car stopped. And I said, "How am I going to get out of this?" And before I knew it, there were three or four of these homeless people behind my car, pushing me across the junction to the other side. I said, "There you go, you know. You'd no time for them, but they they had time for you." And, um, <clears throat> and, 
I was thinking of all the different kinds of shelter I've, I've had in my life. When you think of the shelter you get just from your mother's body when you're first grown, growing. You know? The shelter you get at relatives when they're, when they're giving you food. And uh, I'm always amazed when I'm at a conference and, and someone says there's no free lunch, you know. And meanwhile, usually there's this elaborate free lunch down the side of the room we're just about to have. You know? And the fellow who's standing there, and usually it's a man who says it, couldn't have got past his first three days without free lunches from mother. And then all the free lunches from father and mother and relatives and from the school system that was bequeathed to him and the, and the water system that was bequeathed to him uh, by people who killed themselves to produce these systems. Yeah? so that we could have healthy lives. And even the air the man is breathing is given to him without a meter. Yeah. But you can stand there in the teeth of this evidence and say, I did it all myself. So I always think that one of the great crucial questions to ask at any difficult threshold is, what kind of help should I be asking for here that I'm not asking for? And there are two forms of that, of that asking. One is for visible help and the practical help you need. And the other is for an invisible form of aid, which your imagination has not yet enlarged enough to understand. And so to ask for something which you cannot yet understand, which will emancipate you into the next larger pattern of your life. So this is a little sutra, a little hymn, to all the different forms of refuge I've had in the mountains around the world where I've walked um, and out in the wilderness and, uh, and an image uh, <clears throat> also from the Camino, which is a, an image really of uh, an experience I had elsewhere in the world, but I, I put it on the Camino because it was part of this cycle. So. And I keep having to remind myself that I haven't actually walked the Camino. <laughs> <coughs> I've written all of these poems about it <laughs> through uh, all of my friends' vicarious experiences along the way. Because now, you know, back in the 70s, if you had a free Monday afternoon um, and you were left to yourself for a few hours, you'd find yourself in India by Wednesday. Yeah? <laughs> but now, if, you have a, if you're at a loose end, you'll find yourself on the Camino. And it's a lovely thing to do. There are hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world who walk it and uh, who create these ad hoc communities of inquiry along the way. Yeah. So this is called refuge. <clears throat> Sometimes a nook, a wall half down, a swerve in the path where the breeze can't catch you. Sometimes a nook, a wall half down, a swerve in the path where the breeze can't catch you. Other times a made shelter, a shepherd's build-up of flat stones curved keep the wind off. A shepherd's build-up of flat stones curved to keep the wind off. Once at the top of the pass, it was a cave in the mountain rock taking you in from the swirl and eddy of snow and the killing cold so you could live to a grey blank dawn. Once at the top of the pass, it was a cave in the mountain rock taking you in from the swirl and eddy of snow and the killing cold so you could live to a grey blank dawn. Then in Galicia, it was a breath of warmth from a kitchen door, palatial with light. It was a breath of warmth from a kitchen door, palatial with light, and a daughter's smile, the family behind, asking you in, as if to say, as if to say, of all shelter, traveller, 
you'll ever find on the road, even with those you know, the stranger's love is best of all. As if to say, of all shelter traveler you'll ever meet on the road, even with those you know, the stranger's love is best of all. And I was thinking of that even in a close familial situation because the times when you love your spouse or your daughter or your son or your brother or your sister or your close friend is almost always, no matter how long you've known them, when you see them again as if for the first time and you appreciate them and you get out of this over over familiarity that you've allowed to come between you like a wall and where you've placed names on people you know that are too solid don't allow you to move and don't allow them to move then in Galicia was a breath of warmth from a kitchen door. I was remembering when I was a child and I used to go carol singing. And the only way I had any money at Christmas to buy presents was if we went carol singing. So we used to treat, treat it like a fierce profession. We had our patches and everything. And <laughs> there were two of us, Graham Johnson and I, and, we'd be, we, and we had our, our favourites, you know, little town of Bethlehem to the British version of it. And, um, and we used to uh, do quite well. But I always remember when it was really, really cold you know, and you'd be out there for hours and you'd be freezing and then a door would open and this gorgeous waft of warmth and all the smells from the kitchen and the dinner would hit you, you know, out of this. And you'd say to yourself, do they, do they appreciate what they have <laughs> in the home, you know? Uh, and you'd never really appreciate it unless you looked in from the outside as a stranger. So to appreciate yourself also as a stranger yourself to others who can also extend hospitality at appropriate and at surprising times. This is a uh, piece I wrote about uh, arrival and the trepidations and difficulties of arrival. And it started uh, with the working title of The Glimpse, because it was written towards the end of, the, uh, of this uh, very fierce period of writing that started last August, actually. On, it started out of an experience I had on a cliff face in the west of Ireland, um, looking into the ocean. And uh, I had one poem of this new cycle at that time, And just uh, six months later, I had 29, uh, which uh, in poetic terms is uh, is quite extraordinary. And uh, at least in my own life, it is. And um, I'd come to the end of, I could tell I was coming to the end of the cycle because there was a new voice coming in, which uh, is represented actually by the last poem in the book. And so I knew I had to hurry in order to fill in and, and make the full integrity of the, of the book or I'd be on to something else. Yeah. And I was looking up uh, cover designs for the, uh, for the, for the book and I, I looked on the website of, a, of a, an artist, an English artist who I have great respect for. Her name is um, 
Hillary Painter, P-A-Y-N-T-E-R, and she's a wood engraver, and she's absolutely brilliant, and I've got quite a few of her pieces, prints of her pieces. And I said, I'll have a look on Hillary Painter's site and see if there's something which will, uh, which will represent this journey. And I found this gorgeous print of this uh, road in the English countryside appearing and disappearing. And it's all black and white, and there's all of this, glori these glor this glorious foliage and wildflowers and trees and fields and little cottages. And it's obviously in uh, North Devon or Dorset or something. And then in this black and white engraving, you've got this gorgeous surprise, this thin blue line, which is the sea. And you just glimpse it at the end of the road there. And it's just the sight you get when you're on holiday as a child and you're approaching the ocean, unless you grew up by the ocean, you might have here in California. But if you lived in land as I did, and you went on holiday, you were desperate to see the sea and to smell it. Yeah. When you got that first glimpse of that extraordinary blue, that's when you knew you'd arrived. Yes. And you were so excited, and you were so close, yeah, and you didn't know what to do with yourself. That's the child, child's form of shyness, which takes this kind of exuberance and, and I saw this picture and I said, oh, that's extraordinary. And, and I started writing this piece called The Glimpse. And, uh, and it's really the glimpse of, of, of being about to arrive. <clears throat> and all the transformations you go through as you approach the place, the person, the state. Uh, it's the same feeling you'd have walking down the aisle in a marriage ceremony. Yeah. And... Uh, and, you, and, uh, and all of the questions you have for yourself and the world at that time. And uh, so I wrote, and I was writing and writing and writing, and I went to bed and I got up and I kept writing at it. And then I got on this 747 the next day to fly from London to, because I was in Oxford when I was writing it, and, uh, and I wrote for five hours on the 747. And at the end of it, I had, I had the piece. Yeah. And by then it had uh, transformed into a poem called Santiago. And, uh, and funny enough, there was, a, there was someone who was a, a close reader of my work on the plane, and I met him uh, on the stairs. You know, they have the stairs on the 747. We had a glass of wine on the stairs, and I read him this piece. It had its first reading down the 35,000 feet in the, uh, over a glass of wine on the steps of the, uh, of the 747, but it's Santiago. <clears throat> The road seen, then not seen. The road seen, then not seen. The hillside hiding, then revealing the way you should take. The road seen, then not seen. The hillside hiding, then revealing the way you should take. The road dropping away from you, as if leaving you to walk on thin air, then catching you, holding you up when you thought you would fall. Then catching you, holding you up when you thought you would fall. And the way forward, the way forward, always in the end, the way that you came. The way forward, always in the end, the way that you came. The way that you followed, that carried you into your future, that brought you to this place. No matter that it seemed to take your promise from you. No matter that it had to break your heart along the way. The sense of having walked from far inside yourself out into the revelation. The sense of having walked from far inside yourself out into the revelation, to have risked yourself for something that seemed to stand both inside you 
and far beyond you that called you back in the end to the only road you could follow, walking as you did in your rags of love and speaking in the voice that by night had become a prayer for safe arrival. So that one day you realized, so that one day you realized that what you wanted had already happened long ago and in the dwelling place that you had lived in before you began and that every step along the way, every step along the way you had carried the heart and the mind and the promise that first set you off and then drew you on and that you were more marvelous, you were more marvelous in your simple wish to find a way than the gilded roofs of any destination you could reach. You were more marvelous in your simple wish to find a way than the gilded roofs of any destination you could reach. As if all along you had thought the end point might be a city with golden towers and cheering crowds and turning the corner at what you thought was the end of the road, you found just a simple reflection and a clear revelation beneath the face looking back and beneath it another invitation all in one glimpse like a person and a place you had sought forever like a broad field of freedom that beckoned you beyond like another life like another life and the road still stretching on The road seen, then not seen. The hillside hiding, then revealing the way you should take. The road dropping away from you as if leaving you to walk on thin air, then catching you, holding you up when you thought you would fall. And the way forward, the way forward, always in the end, the way that you came, the way that you followed, the way that brought you to this place, no matter that it seemed to take your promise from you, no matter that it had to break your heart along the way, the sense of having walked from far inside yourself out into the revelation, to have risked yourself for something that seemed to stand both inside you and far beyond you, that called you back in the end to the only road you could follow, walking as you did in your rags of love, walking as you did in your rags of love and speaking in the voice that had become by night a prayer for safe arrival. So that one day you realized that what you wanted had already happened long ago and in the dwelling place in which you lived before you began and that every step along the way you had carried with you, every step along the way you had carried the heart and the mind and the promise that first set you off and then drew you on, and that you were more marvellous in your simple wish to find a way than the gilded roofs of any destination you could reach. As if all along you had thought the end point might be a city with golden towers and cheering crowds, and turning the corner at what you thought was the end of the road, you found just a simple reflection and a clear revelation beneath the face looking back, and beneath it, Another invitation, all in one glimpse, like a person and a place you had sought forever. 
like a broad field of freedom that beckoned you beyond, like another life, like another life, and the road, the road still stretching on. It's lovely to uh, rehabilitate the experience of heartbreak because it's astonishing how much time we waste as human beings trying to find a path where we won't have that imaginative organ broken. Yes? <laughs> and yet there is no path you can take where you won't have your heart broken, no path of integrity or sincerity, uh, no path you can take unless you wall yourself off from reality. Even the best marriage will break your heart. As my wife says, the difficult thing about marriage is marriage. <laughs> I'd say, I don't need to say anything more, no. The dif difficult thing about relationship is relationship. <laughs> Come down in the kitchen, who is this person? <laughs> still hanging around acting as if I know them. <laughs> Can we just call a truce for a few days where we pretend not to know each other? No, you can't, no. And um, parenting, no matter how much effort you put into mothering or fathering or parenting, the child will break your heart. And they seem to have been sent in with specific instructions <laughs> as to how to do it. And then they've lived alongside you uh, as spies uh, <laughs> to study you and to find out your Achilles heel and the weak point. Yeah? An aristocratic English uh, friend of mine used to say, children are good for two things. Labor and espionage. <laughs> and then a good work should always find you wanting at times, or you're not trying. A good work should break your heart. You should at times not know how to go forward. Otherwise, you're just impersonating yourself. Yeah? You're just caught in some previous dynamic in which you were initially successful. <clears throat> so this is about reaching the end of the road, uh, which is no end at all. And I had this lovely moment. Uh, I was... Just, I was uh, um, I was on my way to, uh, to a concert on a winter's night, uh, a classical music concert. And I had sat beside me my uh, Irish niece, Marlene. She'd just arrived off the plane, actually, in a very Irish way. Because uh, I said, uh, when's your return ticket? And she said, I don't have one. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, you're welcome. Stay as long as you want. And, and she's still here. <laughs> but... Uh, <clears throat> Um, we were driving through the snow and the cold and the wind and uh, Marlene, after she'd graduated from University in Ireland, had uh, gone off and done the Camino. And so she'd been seven weeks. But uh, she'd reached Santiago and then she decided she hadn't had enough and she was going on 
for this further couple of days, you can go to the ocean and uh, to the uh, place called Finisterre, or Finisterre in Spanish. And uh, it uh, literally means the ends of the earth. And in the ancient world, it was the ends of the earth. It was where the Atlantic began, which no one had crossed, or at least no one who had come back had crossed. And, uh, and when uh, and, uh, um, she'd gone on to this place, and, uh, and I just happened to ask her the right question as we were driving to this classical music concert in which my daughter was to sing. I said, uh, I said, Marlene, what was the most moving moment you had on the whole Camino? And she said, well, it was that last moment at the ends of the earth, at Finisterre, because the sun was going down. There was this beautiful sunset, but there was a full moon coming up behind me. And uh, so the moon was was so strong that if the sun went behind a rock, I had a moon shadow. And I could see my shadow on the water, and it was really quite extraordinary. And at that place, you're supposed to let go of things and uh, burn a letter or burn something you'd like to burn. But, and then also there's a big pile of clothes and shoes. And you leave something that was really useful for you on the Camino, but you're not going to use anymore. So I left my boots there at the water's edge. And she said that was the most remarkable moment, burning the letters and leaving my shoes at the edge of the water. And I was so taken with the story. I got into the concert, and, and the room went dark, and there was all of this gorgeous music, <coughs> uh, Beethoven trio and my daughter's choir, and, and it was just really marvelous. And I was writing furiously in the dark with my fountain pen on the program, and I was really happy with what I was getting down. But when, at the end of the concert, when the lights came up, it was completely indecipherable, and all the <laughs> ink had run everywhere, and I looked at it, and I said, just go home, you know, you know what you need to write now, yeah, so. And so this is, uh, this is Finisterre, and it's dedicated to Marlene. <clears throat> the road in the end, the road in the end, taking the path the sun had taken. The road in the end, taking the path the sun had taken into the western sea into the western sea and the moon rising behind you as you stood where ground turned to ocean. No way to your future now except the way your shadow could take walking before you across water. No way to your future now except the way your shadow could take walking before you across water, going where shadows go. No way to make sense of a world that wouldn't let you pass except to call an end to the way you had come. To take out each frayed letter you brought and light their illumined corners, and to read them as they drifted on the late western light. To empty your bags, to sort this and to leave that. To promise what you needed to promise all along. To promise what you needed to promise all along. And to abandon the shoes that brought you here right at the water's edge, not because you had given up, not because you had given up, but because now you would find a different way to tread. You would find a different way to tread. And because through it all, part of you would still walk on, no matter how, over the waves. Not because you had given up, not because you had given up, because, but because now you would find a different way to tread. And because through it all, part of you would still walk on, no matter how, over the waves.
Thank you very much. I uh, had the privilege of uh, getting your book, your new book, Pilgrim, uh, yesterday at Brother David Stendhal Rass's uh, birthday, and so I had a chance to read through it overnight. And I'm just stunned by the quality of the voice. Um, it seems to me uh, really that you've achieved here um, something quite rare, which is um, a way of talking about spirit that, um, that is universal, that uh, transcends the lines that exist between people for whom the language of spirituality is useful and people for whom it's anathema. Yeah. So um, we're here to, to do something experimental that I've, I've been doing for a little while, as you know. I've been exploring uh, conversations about spiritual biography. Yes. It actually started with my friend and colleague, Orland Bishop, who is here. Uh, and I was so intrigued by who Orland was that I asked him if we could sit down and, and talk about his spiritual journey. And the result was a really astonishing experience of discovering this uh, contemporary shamanic person who works with gangs in Los Angeles. And then from that, the conversations with Brother David Steindl Rast. And so this is the third experiment for me in this uh, process, which is uh, really quite different from a conventional biographical sketch. It's a, the question is, in a sense, how how one discovers the movement of spirit in one's life and how one understands its evolution. So I think a starting point, just uh, chronologically in a sense, is to ask you uh, when in your life you first became aware of what you see or understand today as spirit in your life. When, when was the dawning of that awareness? Yes. Because I never use uh, spiritual terminology, um, I've always seen it as a sheet of clear glass that I look through in a way that, uh, that the, the, the uh, moments of spiritual awakening were the simple uh, moments of coming into incarnation in, in increasing depth, I suppose, the first awareness you have of your mother and your mother's body, which is a kind of landscape surrounding you and the closeness of that, and uh, the love of my mother, uh, I would say was an astonishing revelation. I always, remember, I always remember standing in the park, I must have been little, I don't, three or so, holding my mother's hand, and I looked at my mother, and I, and I was so in love with her. She looked like the sun, and I just felt these rays coming from, from her into my body, and I was just absolutely gone. You know. I shared a stage with Coleman Barks, actually, and, he's, and he looked, and, and we were getting up and down, and I was in the front seat, and then he'd be in the front seat, and he'd get up. And he looked down at me in front of the audience and said, said, we poets are all mama's boys, he said. 
So that, that yes. first sense was with your mother at a very young age. I'd say, I'd say it was, yes. Mm -hmm. And, the, um, and uh, my mother's voice, and she had a great singing voice, mm -hmm. and my mother's storytelling. And, I can, and she sp she'd, uh, she'd uh, recite to me in Irish and English. And I can still remember some of the things she recited in Irish. I couldn't believe it. I suddenly had this recall in my 30s. Of, the, of these little Irish rhymes, which I wouldn't have heard. Uh, I wouldn't have said to myself for, for, for uh, 25 years at least. So it was, uh, Can you give us an example? Leprechaun a cuoc estres, vishi mue, rion le gone, plurin ron gone, coupon te, ishe de vigabron. There was a little leprechaun, and he was very lost, and he didn't have a cup of tea or a bite of bread. <laughs> And he was very lonely. So then, <laughs> feel that beautiful Irish uh, sense of grief in even the shortest story. <laughs> was not going to end well. <laughs> so as you trace that that first experience onward into childhood and to adolescence. Did it have a, looking back on it, does it have a shape or a form that you can describe? Can you describe in some sense the evolution of it? Very often in my own life, I yes. realized that my own journey, I understand in retrospect. I didn't understand it moving yes. forward, but looking back. Yes. So as you look back, can you trace the shape of that from that first looking up at your mother and having that sense of... I think, I think it's, it has to do with the whole relationship between what you think is you and what you think is not you. And that's, that's the conversation of life that I hold. And it started very early on. I mean, if I was asking someone about their spiritual biography, I would say, what, what do you think the conversation is that you've held since the beginning? And that's a lovely, merciful way of asking it because you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to have started the conversation. <laughs> and, um, and so I think it's, it's that sense of frontier between yourself and the revelations of the world, the interior revelations and the exterior, these beautiful symmetries which occur. And, uh, and we're constantly working between internal and external correspondences out in the world. So um, one of the frontiers that, uh, that I came across when I was six or seven years old was I realized that I was living between two completely different worlds, which was my mother's Celtic Irish rural world that she'd come from and my father's Protestant you know, uh, West Yorkshire industrial world that he'd come from. And... Uh, I realized these were two completely irreconcilable uh, experiences <clears throat> uh, which had to be reconciled. And I remember when I was seven years old saying to myself, I don't know if I use this language, but I remember the feeling in my body that I wasn't supposed to choose between these two streams. And they were two very different streams because, for instance, my mother's world was much more movable and her sense of time was more movable. So she would have five or six clocks, which all told different times in the house, <laughs> according to what she wanted to do. So she, she, 
she'd have a clock to go to sleep by and a clock to wake up by. And they were on two different sides of the bed there. <clears throat> and she had a clock to catch this bus over the back fields, you know, and a bus to get the number 21 down at the Savile's Arms. And her sense of time was very, very different. And one of the things they say in Ireland is the thing about the past is that it's not the past. Yeah? It's here now. You are a conversation between something that you think has already happened but which hasn't fully yet come into incarnation. And your future depends upon your willingness to stand in the past and the present and meet the future full on. Yeah. And so my father would have one clock telling Greenwich Mean Time. And the local history in Yorkshire, was, I lived in a very storied area, actually, because it was, uh, it was where the Industrial Revolution started in the world, but all the industry was down in the bottom of the valleys. And there were all of these moors and, and fields and woodlands in between. So you had gorgeous countryside and then the swift flowing streams that used to power the water mills that powered the, the um, textile mills. You know, and the, so you could, you could weave wool together in these new large buildings where you brought people together to work all under one regime called factories, yeah? which were absolutely radical at the time and radically changed our whole world culture. Um, but I lived <clears throat> just uh, half a mile from where the Luddites used to meet, who were, who were the reaction to this new dispensation, yeah? and would try and destroy the machinery that was taking away their lives. And I lived just a mile away from Robin Hood's grave, yeah? uh, which was actually a 250-year-old fake. Uh, but it was in approximately the place where the arrow would have landed on his deathbed, and he's supposed to have shot it from... Kirkley's prior and said, bury me where this arrow lands. My uncle Tom always used to say he was so weak, the arrow landed on top of the wardrobe. <laughs> they had to take the arrow out with him and choose a place. Yeah. But uh, it was interesting that all of the local history had dates associated with it. So, so the Luddites would be post-Napoleonic, you know, and Robin Hood would be in the 1100s. And you had Queen Cartamandua of the ancient Britons in the first century AD with the Roman invasion. But on my mother's side, the whole sense of history had no dates at all attached to it. And uh, it, was a, it was a past that was lived and breathed through the imagination. And they were all happening all at the same time. So it was lovely to work, uh, start to work a conversation between absolute here-ness and incarnation and solidity and concreteness. Yeah. And in fact, Yorkshire is so concrete that it's surreal and it comes out the other side, actually. And it, it gets... It, it, <coughs> um, and, um, and this other movable world. And you could say I've been... Uh, that's the conversation that I hold in my poetry, I suppose, and in my philosophy that comes out of the poetry, is that we're not supposed to choose... And human beings are always choosing far too early in the process before the whole thing has actually come to fruition. Yeah? So we absent ourselves from elements and realms which are meant to be a merciful aid to us. Yeah? Um, and we make our identity far too unidimensional uh, in which we... we uh, can't even recognize the qualities that will be a revelation to us. <clears throat> OK. 
conversation then is, is a central metaphor for you. And you speak of the philosophy that emerges from your poetry and your role as a, as a poet philosopher. How would you describe that philosophy to us? Well, I suppose I'm looking at, at the conversational nature of reality. And what do you mean by that? I mean that whatever you want to happen in life will not happen exactly as you like it to. (laughs) But equally, whatever the world demands of you will also not occur. And what actually happens is this third frontier between what you think is you and what you think is not you. So that happens, of course, in the everyday course corrections of life. You set off from San Francisco and someone cuts in front of you and you don't make the light you wanted to make. So uh, already the iteration, your whole life has changed just in that moment, yeah. And you have these constant iterations um, in everyday conversation and everyday meeting. And then every now and again, you get the gay pride uh, (laughs) parade, yeah? 30,000 people marching down market, yeah? Which you hadn't planned for. (laughs) And this... And the parade takes different forms. You know, it can be Hurricane Andrew blowing your house and your white picket fence off the face of the earth in Florida. Yeah? It can be Katrina in uh, New Orleans. Yeah? It can be the note on the table that says your partner has left you. Yeah? It can be the, the security guard with all your things in a plastic bag by the door saying you're finished, you know, in the which I've witnessed many times in the organization you're working for. So the great thing is, will you, <clears throat> will you come out and actually create a conversational identity? In other words, a realistic identity, where you're in the meeting place, not in this, this redoubt you've established as an I. So... Yeah. There was an Irish fellow who wrote in the 30s, actually, and he wrote in an Eastern style, and uh, uh, so he took on this Eastern name, Wu Wei Wu. But uh, it was actually a Dubliner. (laughs) But he he asked this wonderful question. He said, why are you unhappy? And being an Irish fellow, he'll answer it for you. (laughs) Say, why are you unhappy? Say, I don't know. He says, because 99.9% of everything you do and all that you say is for yourself. And there isn't one. (laughs) well there isn't one that will survive a real conversation so instead of instead of working from this fixed place as if you're a piece of ammunition that you're going to fire at life and you've just got to align it with the target yeah you have to find a different way to tread. You have to find a different way to work at the meeting place. So you're saying, but did the conversation shift for you over the course of your life in a way that you can trace uh, from those early experiences with your mother to where you are today? Give us a sense of, uh, when I talked to Brother David and I asked him, how do we have this conversation? He said, you should ask me about the high points, yeah. you know, the places, the, yeah. the sort of... Tr- so how do you describe 
the 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 pilgrimage really yes. of that conversation yes. of the central one in your book about the three marriages yes. with your partner with work with yourself yes. how do you describe the the uh, the pilgrimage of your conversation with your of your marriage with yourself yes well it was certainly mediated by a by a, a deep love of the natural world in the fields and woods and hills and I remember having a tremendous relationship with horizon. And in West Yorkshire, you've got all of these horizons. And in the far west, where the sun goes down, you've got the moors. And these are the moors of, of Emily Bronte and Wuthering Heights. And, and, um, and I, re I remember every year, uh, as I grew into consciousness, you know, and could uh, establish my, myself geographically, every year I'd say, I'm going to go to that horizon this year. Yeah. And I'm going to look from that place further out. And sometimes I'd go there with, with uh, friends as a big adventure, and other times I'd go there alone or on a bicycle or walking or whatever. And I remember that was a, uh, a remark that gave me a remarkable sense of uh, adventure and increasing spaciousness in my life. And I lo I've always loved uh, physical geography and paths. Uh, I love paths. Um, so it was a joy to write this 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 cycle. So uh, so certainly the the natural world and then poetry itself. I was I started writing uh, from when I was seven years old or so. And I remember when I was eleven years old, being in the local library and looking up at the top shelf of poetry book where the poetry was. Yeah, and it was as if it was it was just kept just above your finger height. Yeah? <laughs> But I remember standing up on tiptoe and pulling down, just between two fingers, a book of poetry. And the book that came down was a joint book between Ted Hughes and Tom Gunn. And interestingly enough, Tom Gunn made T-H-O-M-G-U-N-N, made his home in San Francisco, actually. And I looked at the book, and it, and it said it was part of this Young Poets series. And first of all, I couldn't believe that they could call two 30-year-olds young, you know, I don't have any Young poets, young poets. Now, I always believe the word young should go before the word poet. <laughs> but I looked at that, and I looked into it. And I don't know if you remember that perspective you had as a child, where you'd listen to adult conversations and you'd say, these people are insane. <laughs> They've forgotten primary dynamics which are absolutely clear to the child and you'd hear things on television or you'd hear parents talking in the room and you say how could they be involved in this walled off nonsense you know that they're talking about but when I when I took down this book and I looked into it I said to myself these are adults who have kept the primary revelations of childhood alive into adulthood and you saw that when you were 11 years old, you said? I did, yeah. I might not have said it in that language, but it was clear I would have said something close to it. So These did you keep... The... who have actually kept their, their soul of childhood alive. And it's interesting, actually. I read a quotation not long ago uh, uh, by one of the Huxleys, you know, this famous genius family in England, great scientists and artists. And one of them said, the genius is keeping the enthusiasms of childhood alive into adulthood. Yeah. 
So it was interesting to have that. Uh, so do you feel that you were able to follow that throughout your life, keeping that, uh, that sense of childhood wonder alive, or did you lose it and need to refind it? Oh, yes. Yeah, it was the, the road appearing and disappearing, oh. yes. <laughs> <laughs> the hillside hiding them, revealing the way you should take. Mm -hmm. Yes, the road falling away from you as if leaving you to walk on thin air, then catching you, holding you up when you thought, yes, it was all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, but it was a definite, a definite sense of, of glimpsed, disappearing, reappearing, and a, a certain faith it, that it would always. There was a traumatic uh, time in university where I went through a great grief, uh, having um, lost, I felt, those, the primary vision of my youth. And that was a difficult, I remember it, was, it lasted for a year or so, May even have been a depression. I don't know, but I certainly, I certain that was the keenest that I ever felt losing the path for such a long time. Mm -hmm. yeah. When mm -hmm. after university did you really come into a sense that you had found your your destiny? I think as a poet. As a poet. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, when I was fourteen years old, I saw Jacques Cousteau sailing across our. A little television screen. Mm -hmm. And so I, I gave up all my art subjects mm -hmm. to the grief of my arts teachers and language teachers mm -hmm. and English teacher uh, and put myself into the salt mines of biology, chemistry and physics right. because, uh, because I wanted to become a marine zoologist. I'd seen something. I'd seen another horizon, but it was in this little television screen, yeah? Yeah. Uh, in, which I could traverse in the equivalent of the good ship Calypso. And for those of you who don't know Jacques Cousteau, he invented the aqualung, and, and he, was, um, he was the ecological figure of the 60s and 70s, really. And, uh, and so I, am, I um, emerged with a degree in marine zoology uh, when I was 21 or so. And uh, in the exigencies of, of having to spend long, lonely nights with the Krebs cycle in biochemistry. <laughs> I'd, I'd stopped writing, probably, in my first year in university. And, um, and uh, uh, at the end of my studies, I, uh, in order to stop myself from having my heart broken, because the the biological field was a complete desert at that time. It was a very hard time economically, very much like this time now. Um, and my friends were just getting refusals from interviews to, for jobs. They weren't even getting interviews. I decided that I couldn't, I couldn't have, as I say, have my heart broken, have the promise taken away from me. And so instead of risk myself, I was going to go off to Germany play Irish fiddle, which I'd played on the streets there, make a fortune, which I did in my vacations at that time, and then go off to India, which, as I said earlier, that's what you did in those days. Yeah. And uh, I had this incredible encounter, a midnight encounter with a stranger in a, far a remote farmhouse uh, on the side of a mountain in North Wales, who set me straight again. And uh, so... Uh, Can you tell us about that? What, what? Well, it's in the first chapter of Crossing the Unknown Sea, but it was in this called... Uh, it's called Mid Midnight Stranger, I think. Mm. Um, but, uh, well, I'd gone round... I'd, 
in my last year, it's very intense in, in English university because you have these enormous exams at the end of the year. And uh, all, you, all that you've uh, studied for three years, you're tested on in these big finals. Yeah. So you basically are closeted off for the last six months of your life. But I've supposedly had a relationship with a woman who lived on the other side of the mountains. And the only way it stayed alive was because we never saw each other. <laughs> but after I'd finished my exams and I decided I wasn't going to risk myself for marine zoology, I'd go around and see her. But she lived in a place, there was no phone in the farmhouse. Yeah? And I was living off an overdraft. I was poor as a church mouse. So I hitchhiked around the mountains. And I got dropped off at the bottom of this place called Pennant which is a really, really haunted place, actually. And there's still covens to this day, a lot of witchcraft around that area, actually. And there was even a tower, an old ruined tower, where Alistair Crowley used to call up the devil you know, back in the 20s and 30s. And you used to whistle when you walked past that uh, <laughs> tower. But I got dropped off, and I could see this gathering storm coming in off the Irish Sea. And I saw us walking up, up the uh, road. And you had to walk a good two miles or so past the tower, whistling away and right up to the door. And I knocked on the door just as the first flood of rain came down. And I knew immediately when I knocked, the door because of, knocked on the door because of the echo inside, there was no one there. And I'm flattened against this door by the rain coming in. But this being a shared kind of student alternative communal house, the door was open. So I let myself in like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And the place was deserted. And so, uh, like Goldilocks, after a while, it was cold in there. I said, oh, well, I'll, ma I'll, uh, I'll make a fire. They'll be glad of a fire when they get back. So I made a fire, wooden coal, as it is in North Wales. And after I got the fire going, I, I said, well, I'll put the kettle on. Maybe they'll come in and, and we'll have a cup of tea, you know. But I made myself a cup of tea. So I'm, the, I'm settling in, you know. I'm in the... <laughs> I'm by the fire, tea, the whole thing. And the dark comes in, and, uh, and the storm comes in. So I, here I am sitting in this strange place talking about refuge and the hospitality of strangers and invisible strangers. <laughs> and, uh, and I fall asleep by the fire. And then suddenly there's a rapping at the door that wakes me up. And I look at my watch. It's midnight, literally. And I said, wait a minute. If someone's knocking at the door, they don't live here either. <laughs> So I steal myself and open the door, and there's a stranger, and, um, and he's probably about 30 years old. I'd be 21 at the time or so, 22, and, and he's got a leather bag over his shoulder, and, uh, and he's looking for someone else who lives in the farmhouse, who I don't know. I say, come in, I don't live here. But... <laughs> so we sit down by the fire, and, uh, and I, make him a, I make him a pot of tea, you know, and, and um, I had a little glass of brandy, but he wouldn't take any. And, uh, and uh, he starts telling me about his work. Because if you, as you do with a stranger, you start to open up. And he's, he's a biologist, but he's a very special kind of biologist. He does surveys of native forest in England and the carrying capacity and how human beings can live off the wild harvests. It was totally fascinating. And he was employed at it. And he went all over England to these great estates and did these audits and surveys. And I was just astonished. And of course, I said to him, how did you get work like that? And when I said that, I knew I was asking, why have I given up? You know? and, and how did you do it? And he said to me, 
Are you serious? You want to know? I said, I am. He said, I was a drug addict and I wanted to kill myself in North London. I said, and I said to myself, I said, oh my God, that's a start, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, I lived, we were all addicts together, living in this 12th floor apartment flat. And it was awful cause, because our addictions always came first. So we stole from each other. No one could trust anyone else. Our dealers were right on the corner beneath. You couldn't escape. It was terrible. It was awful weather. I decided that's it. Um, I'm going to do myself in. So I throw myself out the window, and it was an old sash window, and I tried to get out, but my sweater caught on a nail. Yes? And, I got, and I got halfway out the window, and there was this old flower box across the window. And I ended up spread-eagled across the flower box with my sweater caught on the nail. And he, and he said to me, it was the lowest point of my life, because I, I couldn't even kill myself properly. And... and uh, he said, but once, you know, once the whole willfulness had passed, I just lay there and I had nowhere to go and nothing to do. And I, I looked down into this little landscape and there was a little river of water which was dropping from a guttering somewhere above, falling to, into one corner and creating this tiny stream. And there were little weeds and plants. And because I had nowhere to go and I'd, I'd hardly a friend, I had one friend left in the world, and uh, I started molding this landscape with my hands. Yeah. And I was there an hour or so in, in the rain, in the mud, you know, working away and moving plants around, creating this little paradise you know, where I'd no paradise in my life at all. And he said at the end of about an hour, I had a glimmer and a glimpse of what I might like to do with the rest of my life. He said, the hardest thing was getting myself off that nail and out from under that sash window and walking past my dealer on the corner. But I had one friend left on the, in the world and I knocked on his door and he let me in and he helped me get into a clinic and I got clean. And then I started working just temporarily as a landscaper. And then I went to school and then I went to college and then I got a master's, yeah. And then I did this work, and this is, this is where you see me now. And I remember sitting there saying, saying to myself, here I am, completely compassmentless with all of my powers, yeah. not a thought of finishing myself off, you know, hungry for life, yeah. and I've given up. And here's this man at the very bottom who had everything he needed. He'd just come to ground in exactly the right place. So that was a beautiful... Uh, um, sense of visible and invisible help that came to me. Mm -hmm. And then I turned my face back to it and all kinds of extraordinary things happened. I mean, part of it, you can think of it in terms of a, a kind of magic that when you put your will towards something and your intentionality, I should say, things seem to happen. But it may be just that, that because you're looking, you see. Because you're paying attention. Um, you actually are aware of the revelations that are being made known to you. Whereas when you've given up, your, your intentionality is not even elsewhere. It's in some neutral zone where you hope for safety and you hope not to have your heart broken or to be disappointed. When you speak of visible and invisible support or visible and invisible world, yes. uh, are you agnostic about whether an invisible world 
uh, exists, or do you, in other words, you said it may just be that you pay attention in a different way. Yes. So are you agnostic about the existence of invisible worlds, or do you have a sense that invisible worlds are in fact part of, of your conversation with reality? Well, it seems to me a very common sense thing that there are invisible worlds, because by definition, the invisible world is just the one you're not seeing or hearing. And, uh, and so anything that is beyond your normal way of paying attention is an invisible world, actually. And so you just start to extrapolate that out. If, if, there are, if there are lots, if there is always a greater possibility than your strategic mind can arrange for yourself, who knows how far that horizon can go? And uh, many of us have had experiences of, of an extraordinary breadth of horizon and, uh, and extraordinary revelations which break through into what looks like the everyday. Mm. But if you can keep that sense of perception wide, then, then the extraordinary becomes the everyday. When I always think the sense of intentionality and perception. Sometimes if I'm in an, a really boring liminal space like an airport, yeah, um, I will actually deepen my intentionality exactly because I've, given, I've put myself under the illusion that nothing revelatory is going to happen. And so I will, one way to do it is just to be walking through O'Hare Airport and saying, now this is really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and what it is, it's a kind of invitation. And I always remember coming off a plane, uh, in fact, I wrote a piece about it, and it's called Arrivals, coming off a plane from London in Washington, D.C., and all of these corridors come together before you get to immigration. We joined this other corridor, which was obviously a plane from Ethiopia. And here we all are with our rollaways and, our, and, it's, and being in business class, you're first off, you know, and so it's all of these moneyed kind of corporate, this moneyed corporate crowd coming off first. But suddenly we join this other stream, and, and suddenly we're behind two Ethiopian ladies, tall, willowy, like ballet dancers, and with these beautiful turbans. And they're taking their time, and they're just amazed by all this grayness, you know? And they're looking around, everyone there, and we're all behind them. And then we get to this sharp turn left, and there is something they have never seen in their life before an escalator. Yeah? And they stop and they start screaming and singing and shouting. They're, they've never seen anything like it in their lives and it goes up into God knows where, you know. And one of them decides she's going to be courageous and step onto it. Meanwhile, the crowd is getting bottlenecked behind her. You know? And she puts her foot onto the escalator and she withdraws it. <gasps> like this, but her shoe gets caught. <laughs> And her sandal starts ascending into heaven. And so they start clapping and applauding the shoe as it's ascending into God knows where. And we're all stood behind witnessing this like extras from the Bible. <laughs> And I thought, isn't that just exactly what happens? You get to a threshold place, you lose your courage, you know? 
but, and you decide you're not going to go, but then you suddenly realize you've already sent your boxes ahead. <laughs> and this little shoe, and she has to go after her shoe. Yeah. So her friend is dragging on her, saying, don't do it, don't go, you know. And she throws off her friend, gets onto the escalator, and she's rising up into the heavens, singing as she goes, <laughs> following her little shoe. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is the parting of the Red Sea, that is. And you could be going along and you'd see nothing at all, yeah? You'd say, why am I being delayed? That's the strategic mind. Yeah. So strategic mind is this evolutionary necessity, a part of the human being which needs to give temporary names to a very fearful reality. But the names are never the thing itself. Yeah. And uh, to be able to live from this unnameable place, uh, <coughs> exemplified by that woman, ascending into America. Yeah? You've uh, been a friend of Brother David Steindl Rouse, this uh, extraordinary Benedictine monk whose 86th birthday we celebrated yesterday, yesterday at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. Um, and at the end of this day of celebration, they just called two or three people up to stand with Brother David, and, and you were one of them. So this is a friendship of long standing. You uh, told a story uh, uh, about Brother David that, that uh, I think is, uh, is illustrative of something of value to you about uh, a time when you felt lost in your work. Well, yes, it was, uh, he, was, uh, he was there uh, at the side of the road at a very crucial pass in my life and uh, where I'd lost the way in a way. Um, or I, perhaps I just uh, was starting to lose courage about taking the next step. And that was the moment just before uh, I was about to go full-time as a poet in the world. Yeah. So I was, I was gathering uh, my courage you know, and uh, girding my loins, as it says in the Bible, ready to go. But, um, but I was working at a non-profit at the time. And I always say, if you want to kill yourself, the non-profit is the place to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's never enough resources and never enough people, and you're saving the world, so there's never any reason why you shouldn't put your hand up and say, well, I'll do that too. Yeah, so. So, um, so one of the... And in fact, it becomes the red badge of courage that you can do that too, yes. Yeah, so... Uh, so, um, so one of the, one of the diagnostics of the nonprofit is stress, yeah. and uh, and the sense of carrying the world as a weight and a burden. Yeah. So I was fully into this this nonprofit phase of the incarnation, <laughs> and uh, and I found myself in the doorway of this meeting room just as it was about to start. And it was just a small organization, so for some reason I was the only person who wasn't going to be a part of this meeting. And, and I was on my way from one place to another, and I was going very quickly. And one of the things you attempt, you know, when you're, when you're stressed and you're in a very complex situation is you think that velocity is the answer to complexity. <laughs> yeah. 
and the, and the tragedy of, of velocity as an answer to complexity is after a while you can't see anything or anyone who isn't traveling at the same speed as you are. You know? <laughs> so the longer waveforms from which the revelation is actually going to come become part of the invisible world. So I stopped in this room and everyone's there and they're getting papers out of their bags and everything and, I, and in a very loud voice I said, has anyone seen David? And there was only one David who worked in that organization, and that was myself. So everyone looked back at me quizzically and then burst out laughing. Yeah? So it was a moment of, of beautiful humiliation, actually, where humiliation literally means to be returned to the ground of your being, to the humus. Yeah? And I was stood there, and I felt completely humiliated, even though on the outside I was laughing with them. But it was just as if something had snapped uh, that I couldn't hold together anymore. And I realized how completely and utterly exhausted I was. So part of the first revelation is just realizing exactly where you are. Just to admit how tired you are, how stressed. Yeah? Just come to ground in it. So having done that, I couldn't do another stroke of work and I just walked home. And we lived, uh, we lived in this house overlooking the water on the Puget Sound on Whidbey Island. And, and I sat down at the kitchen table and I looked and I see this bottle of red wine in front of me. And, um, and I, it reminded me that I'd got it out that morning because uh, my friend, uh, uh, Brother David Stendhal Rast, the Benedictine monk, was coming. And uh, we're, we're both great lovers of poetry and he's Austrian and he speaks, uh, speaks fluent German, of course, and English. And... Uh, we had a shared love of the German-speaking poet Rilke. And uh, so we used to get together and he'd read Rilke in the original German and I'd read it in various translations and we'd do our own translations and we'd drink the bottle of wine. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, I'll <clears throat> thank God, you know, something wonderful is going to happen this, this evening. And you could say that Brother David represents a certain kind of wisdom and groundedness and presence. So no, no sooner had we sat down with the bottle and the glasses and got the books open, when I, I said, Brother David, I said, tell me about exhaustion. And he looked at me, surprised to see if I was serious. And he saw I was completely done in and exhausted. And, uh, and then he looked at me and he said, you know, the antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest. I said, the antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest. What is it? He said, the antidote to exhaustion is wholeheartedness. Yeah. And you're so hung out to dry and you're so uh, stressed and exhausted because what you're doing is not what you're supposed to be doing. So for other people, it was their heartfelt path. But for you, uh, it's time for you to step into your poetry and uh, to let go of the, of the land, find a different way to tread. It's my language now. But, uh, and, uh, so that was, that was lovely. So I just uh, let go of the whole thing and started to do what I could do wholeheartedly. And first of all, that had to do with just rearranging my uh, work inside the organization and giving away things that I didn't want to do. And then when I'd done that, I said, now, next step, which is giving away uh, this temporary name of working inside this organization mm. and, uh, and stepping out. So there's nothing wrong with the organization and there was nothing wrong with the work, actually, all the people who were there. 
um, I was uh, I was uh, I was just being called by a larger horizon, and I got a lovely little uh, invitation. I often say there's no, uh, I often think there's no uh, real conversation without an invitation. And it's lovely to ask yourself how, invitation is, how invitational is my identity? Do, do I make an invitation? Do I make invitation to others? Do I make an invitation to something which as yet is beyond my ken? to break into my world and reveal itself to me. And creating an invitational identity also helps me to recognize invitations when they're being made to me. So there's a gorgeous, uh, there's a gorgeous piece by Wordsworth which pulls a lot of this together actually and uh, because it's, it's out of the north country of England where I grew up. And uh, it's the moment also when Wordsworth decides to pledge himself to his future as a poet. And in parallel to my own stepping out, there's, there was very little corroboration for, from him, for him, from his colleagues or friends or from his family. No one s steps up to you slapping you on the back saying, great career move. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, And he's also, Wordsworth, is, this is a, would be 1798. And uh, he's under tremendous pressure from his guardians because he and his brothers and his sister were orphaned as a child. First from their mother when she died, when Wordsworth was about seven, and then from their father when Wordsworth was about 13. And they were under the aegis of these uh, very fierce uncles, these guardians. Yeah. And of course, the uncles wanted him to get a decent job because... That's the function of a, being a good guardian. <laughs> and, um, and to look after his sister Dorothy, because she was of a class where it wasn't in the imagination where she could work for a living. So she'd have to be looked after by her brothers. But Dorothy wants nothing to do with this. She wants to set up this little creative combustion engine, this menage with her brother, where they would both, uh, they would both write together. And, uh, and she would enable Wordsworth. Uh, her brother's genius, as she saw it. We were to find out later that she had her own genius as a writer, too. But, uh, so he's under tremendous pressure, not only from the abstracts of guardians, but this internal pressure to look after his sister. Um, and he goes home from Cambridge University to the mountains and lakes of the Lake District, which were a big part of my growing up. And... Uh, it's all of these stone villages and wild mountain tops and woods and fields and with pathways and great pubs everywhere. And, um, and he goes to a midsummer night's dance and he dances until four o'clock in the morning. And then he walks home and he's so happy to be back in the mountains after this flat fenland in Cambridgeshire. And so happy to be home from Cambridge itself. And, and the sun comes up at four o'clock in the morning in those high latitudes and it's just as if he's never seen it as beautiful in his whole life. And it's just as if he knows that this will forever be his home, whether he lives there or not. And it's just as if that sets up this internal symmetry, this internal correspondence, where he knows the lineaments 
and the landscape of his internal dwelling in his portrait. So this is what he says. <clears throat> he says, and there's a couple of words in here which have passed out of the language. Uh, one is, um, is grain-tinctured, which meant dyed scarlet. So a uh, lady here is wearing a grain-tinctured jacket here, a scarlet jacket. And uh, the other word is empyrean, which means uh, from the heavens. Yeah. So he says... Uh, Two miles I had to walk along the fields before I reached my home. Two miles I had to walk along the fields before I reached my home. Magnificent the morning was. A memorable pomp. More glorious than I ever had beheld. The sea was laughing at a distance. All the solid mountains were as bright as clouds, grain tinctured, drenched in empyrean light, while in the meadows and the lower grounds lay all the sweetness of a common dawn with dews, vapours, and the melody of birds and labourers going forth into the fields. Ah, dear friends, ah, dear friends, need I say, but to the brim my heart was full. Ah, dear friends, need I say, but to the brim my heart was full. I made no vows, I made no vows, but vows were then made for me. I made no vows, but vows were then made for me. Bond unknown to me was given that I should be, else sinning greatly, a dedicated spirit. And on I walked in blessedness, which even yet remains. <laughs> William Wordsworth. <clears throat> David White, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the reading. Lovely. Thank you for the, yeah. the uh, invitation. Absolutely. My life. Yeah. Yeah, thank you.